0: The passage that was just read for you from the Gospel of Luke, someone comes to Jesus and he asks him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? I imagine that's a question all of us have asked at one time or another. And, and due to the way that saved uh, has come to be used in our Western Christian heritage, we think saved being uh, means being uh, We think being saved means going to heaven and being saved from hell. Uh, Whether that's what they meant by it in Jesus' day, we'll address in a moment. But as is his custom, Jesus does not give a direct answer. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He doesn't give numbers or percentages. He does what he usually does when people ask him a question. He tells a story. It's a story about a narrow door. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. If that's the answer to the question, will those who are saved be few, we can't help but feel that the answer is yes. I mean, he says the door is narrow. He says many will not enter by it. And this can be kind of troubling for a number of reasons, at least three that I can think of. It troubles us in general, because that would mean that lots of people, most of the people who have lived in the world perhaps, will spend eternity in hell. And we might have a hard time believing that a God who would allow such a thing is a loving and merciful God like we thought. Secondly, if few will be saved, we might question the effectiveness of God's entire plan of redemption. I mean, he sends his son to take on flesh, to die in our place, to rise from the dead and ascend to the throne of heaven and pour out his spirit on his church to proclaim the gospel of his kingdom to the ends of the world. And all he has to show for it are a few souls. That seems to make very little of God's glorious gospel. And it seems to diminish the person and work of Christ rather than glorify him. Indeed, the notion that few of the whole human race will enter the kingdom of God seems to contradict other things that Scripture and Jesus himself say about the kingdom. In fact, the parable of the narrow door that we're looking at today, it's sandwiched between two such verses. If you look just before it in verses 18 through 21, Jesus compares the kingdom to a tiny grain of mustard seed that grows into a great tree, in which the birds of the air take refuge. He compares it to leaven that a woman hides in three measures of flour until that leaven permeates the entire loaf. These parables seem to teach that from modest beginnings, the kingdom will grow exponentially, that it will have a permanent and pervasive influence on the world. So how can it be that few are saved? The end of the parable of the narrow door itself tells us people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. That's a very biblical image of a great gathering, not a small one. How can these things be if few will be saved? Thirdly, and more personally, When we think that few will be saved, it's common for each of us to fear that maybe we ourselves will not be among those few. I mean, we know from Jesus' own testimony that we are all more sinful than we imagine. We fall far short of the law of God. So if few will be saved, what hope does a sinner like me have? What hope do any of us have? Am I right about this? Do you ask these questions when you hear about the narrow door? Now, I don't want to minimize the difficulties that this passage presents. Certainly, Jesus is giving a stark warning here. Certainly, Jesus speaks these words to cause his audience to do a little soul searching. And certainly, this parable is a call to attention, a call to faithfulness, a call to as Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. But I wonder if some of the difficulties that we have with this passage are mistaken. I wonder if some of the confusion comes from doing what we often do with Jesus' parables and teachings. We, we come to the Gospels as if these are timeless, a collection of timeless sayings that we apply in the same way in all places and all times. And so we rip them out of their original context and we slap them down in 21st century America instead of trying to understand what they meant for Jesus and the people that he was speaking them to. So today, let's try to read this passage as though it was primarily addressing the situation of Jesus' day. Let's consider how these things might be talking about the people of Israel in Judea, In the first century where Jesus speaks these words, indeed, let's try to read this passage in light of everything else that we've already seen and heard from Luke's gospel, and maybe it will make a little bit more sense. And if reading the passage that way actually does make better sense of it, if that reading seems to fit all the pieces, maybe we will have better perspective on the fears and concerns that this passage has raised in us. So first of all, the question, Luke 13:23. and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, first of all, remember that this is not a modern American Christian asking this question, but a first century Jew. And what a first century Jew was asking about who would be saved, he was asking about who would pass safely from the present age into what they called the age to come or the world to come. And the age to come was the time when God would finally visit his people and through his anointed king, the Messiah, he would throw off Gentile oppressors and deliver his people into a new age, a new world of unprecedented flourishing and peace and prosperity and abundant life, an eternal life. But who all would get to share in this age to come? This was a question at the time. Some Jews thought that only the Jewish people would share in the world to come, which I guess would necessarily mean that only a few out of the people in the whole world would be saved. Others thought that even among people of Jewish descent, there were only a few who were truly faithful, truly righteous, true keepers of the law. For example, we know about the Essenes. They were the community who preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls that you've heard of. They were sort of a small splinter group of Jews who believed that only they would be saved. Because only they were truly faithful to the law. And so for them, those who would be saved were indeed few. So this was a live question in Jesus' day. And probably this question asked of Jesus was to sort of suss out his view on this question and see if his teaching aligned with the pharisees or the sadducees or the other religious leaders of the day and jesus responds to the question but as i said he doesn't give a direct answer he he never seems to do that instead he tells a story so let me read this portion again so we have it before us and as i do that remember that this is a story pay attention to the characters Pay attention to the action. Pay attention to the sequence of these actions. He said to them, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Jesus answers the question, will those who are saved be few, with the story of a master and his house and the door to the master's house. The master of the house is actually one of Jesus' favorite images. How many master of the house stories do you think there are in Luke's gospel? Want to take a guess? I count seven Uh, Maybe that's significant, right? What I want you to attend to in this Master of the House story is the timing. There are two distinct time periods set out in this story, if you think about it. Now, the first time period, it's not explicitly stated, but it's implied. This is the time period when the Master of the House left his door open so that his guests could come in, right? This makes sense. We know there was a time when the master of the house left his door open to his guest because of what happens next in the story. Jesus tells us there also comes a time when the master of the house rises and shuts the door. Now, while we are here, maybe it's good to point out that Jesus specifically says the master has risen. It's hard not to see an allusion to the resurrection of Jesus himself here. That word risen is frequently used to describe rising from the dead in the Gospels. In fact, the next time Jesus uses this word in Luke, he uses it to describe the raising of the dead. So we're already seeing maybe some allusions to Jesus and what he's about to do here. But let's set that aside for a moment. So you have different time periods here. There's the time when the door was open, then the master shuts the door, and now we have this next period of time when the door is shut. Now notice this. Jesus says it is When the master of the house has risen and shut the door, then some people begin to stand outside and to knock at the door. Now can't we infer from this that these people did not even try to come in the door before when the master had it open to them? Otherwise they'd be inside already, right? You see, they neglected the master's invitation until it was too late. The story is very similar to Matthew's story of the ten virgins who are waiting the wedding feast. Five of them were foolish and they delayed their coming to the wedding feast until the bridegroom was already inside. And then it was too late. The door was already shut. But this is the point here there are two periods of time. There's the time when the door is open and people are able to come in, and there's the time when the door is shut and no one is able to come in now before we jump to apply this to our situation or to the second coming let's remember our context could it be that these two time periods correspond to the two time periods jesus distinguishes elsewhere in luke's gospel the first being this period of time right here when jesus is telling this story this period of time when jesus And later his apostles will be ministering to the people of Israel when they will be, if you will, holding open the door to the kingdom by preaching the good news that all who repent and turn to Jesus will be saved. Could this be the time when the door to the master's house is wide open? Because Jesus has also prophesied a day of reckoning throughout Luke's gospel, a day of vengeance, as he calls it, a day of visitation. Jesus says there's coming a time when Jerusalem will be judged, overrun, and destroyed by foreign armies. Jesus warns his disciples to be ready for this day of judgment. He says to them in chapter 21, verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. There will be great distress upon the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. See, I think that right there is the master of the house shutting the door. That's the second period of time when the door is shut and it's too late to enter in. Could that be what this story is about? The open door ministry of Jesus and the apostles and the shutting of the door when the wrath of God finally falls on Jerusalem as Jesus prophesied? That makes sense to me. And in fact, Jesus describes these same time periods in another parable right here in the same chapter. Just look up a couple paragraphs to verse 6, Luke 13, verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but... If not, you can cut it down. So to save time, I'm just going to tell you the interpretation that makes most sense to me. Just as he is the master of the house, so Jesus is the vineyard owner in this story. And the fig tree is Israel. In fact, Jesus uses this image of Israel in all the Gospels, and it's common in the Old Testament too. So the fig tree is Israel. And for the three years of his public ministry, Jesus has been inspecting Israel to see if they are bearing the spiritual fruit God called them to. And sadly, he finds no fruit in Jerusalem. and So he threatens its destruction. We've seen that in this gospel already. But he shows mercy. And he gives the fig tree into the hands of the vine dresser. In other words, Jesus gives Israel into the hands of the Holy Spirit and the apostles. See what you can do with them. And for a generation, they continue to apply the fertilizer of the gospel until finally judgment comes on Jerusalem in A.D. seventy. Now, whether I've interpreted all the details correctly or not, the point remains the same as the parable of the narrow door. There is a time when the door is open. There is a time when the vineyard is allowed to grow. There is a time when Jerusalem has the opportunity to receive Jesus as Messiah. But that time is limited. There comes a day of judgment when Jesus' prophecies are fulfilled when the tree is cut down, when the narrow door is shut. So even putting the narrow door back in the context of its own chapter in Luke helps us to see what Jesus is talking about here. And this is important. Jesus is talking about a very specific time and place in redemptive history. He's talking about the situation of Jerusalem and the people of God in the first century So we should not read the narrow door as some timeless statement that in each and every age only a few people will be saved because that's not what Jesus is trying to do here. So if we're understanding this story to be about Jerusalem in the first century, if we see that Jesus is the master of the house, then who are these people knocking on his door? Jesus goes on to say, verse 25, they stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. Now, based on what we've already seen throughout Luke's gospel, who could these people possibly be? It sounds like the Pharisees, doesn't it? And the scribes and the lawyers, the social and religious elite of Israel, and all those who revere and follow them. Think about it. Haven't we often seen them eating with Jesus, inviting him to dine with them so that they can challenge his teachings? I mean, that literally the next chapter starts with the Pharisee inviting Jesus to eat with him when he's just got done saying this. We know they've heard him teach in their streets because we've seen them always there, ready to put him to the test. We have seen that they are indeed workers of evil, as the Master says of them. Jesus has pronounced woes upon them for they neglect justice and the love of God. They thought of themselves as first. In the kingdom. But Jesus is teaching, they're actually last. The people knocking at the Master's door are all the people who rejected Jesus' ministry while he was with them. They heard him speak, they ate with him, and yet they still did not enter the narrow door while it was open. And once the door is shut, they will find themselves on the outside where there is not a feast, but weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus says. This all fits with the end of the chapter, too. If you look to the next passage, after Jesus has finished telling this cautionary tale right on cue, the Pharisees come and reject Jesus once again. Luke 13, 31. At that very hour... Some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, at first, it might look like, well, maybe the Pharisees are trying to help Jesus, right? They're warning him of danger so that he can escape. And I suppose that's possible. But I think it's more likely that the Pharisees see Jesus as a troublemaker, drawing unwanted attention to their district. They don't want Herod to mistakenly think that they are aiding and abetting an enemy of the state, lest when Herod comes for Jesus, these Pharisees might become collateral damage. And so they say, get away from here. They don't want Jesus around. They don't want him. Either way, the Pharisees, they certainly don't try to take Jesus under their wings of protection, do they? And this inspires Jesus to describe how Jerusalem Refused to come under his wings of protection, because he continues in verse thirty-four, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken." And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until they recognize that he is the Messiah. You see, Jesus' arms have been opened wide to Jerusalem. Just as the narrow door was at first opened to those willing to come in. But Jerusalem was not willing, Jesus says. Jerusalem did not enter Jesus's embrace Jerusalem did not enter by the narrow door while it was open and the door is about to be shut. Jesus says behold your house is forsaken. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem where the presence of God used to dwell in the midst of God's people. But when God's people reject what he is doing among them he packs up and leaves. He forsakes his house and Jesus says this is already the case. Now, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he'll make this same point in dramatic fashion at the cleansing of the temple. And that's a foretaste of the judgment to come, that day when the fig tree is cut down, when the narrow door is slammed shut. What does he say in Luke 21? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. Your house is desolate, Jesus says. Your house is forsaken. But the master's house will not be desolate. Look what Jesus says. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be there. All the great prophets of old will be there. People from east and west, north and south will be there. All who trust in God's Messiah, all who take the opportunity to enter by the narrow door will be in the master's house. You see, Jesus never actually says that only a few people will pass through the narrow door, does he? He doesn't say that. Just because the door is narrow does not mean lots of people can't pass through it. But the point is, you do actually have to come in through the door. You do actually have to come in through the door. You have to come in through Jesus. And in Jesus' day in Israel, only a few were willing to enter by that narrow door. Only a few were willing to accept that Jesus was God's Messiah. The apostles, the first Christians, more than 3,000 at the day of Pentecost, all who repented and claimed Jesus as Lord. But that's still a very small portion of Israel. They appeared to be only a grain of mustard seed or maybe a little bit of leaven. But Jesus gladly welcomed them into his house. Those who refused the opportunity, who remained in Jerusalem, those who refused to leave the old world behind, those who thought the temple of the Lord would save them, they would find that house to be desolate, just as Jesus foretold. A house swept and put in order, but desolate ready to be invaded by seven more evil spirits so that their last state was worse than the first. It seems to me this is what Jesus is talking about in this parable of the narrow door, about that opportunity that faced the people of his day when Jesus and the apostles were among them, the same opportunity that is presented throughout Luke's gospel. And if we see it that way, perhaps that will keep us from assuming that Jesus was describing the growth of the kingdom in all times and places. It will keep us from thinking that only a few will be saved over the entire course of redemptive history, when the rest of the Bible portrays the gospel as having massive worldwide impact, and the Spirit's ministry through the church bearing much fruit. But that doesn't mean that this passage has no relevance for us today. It still speaks to us of the things that Jesus valued and the importance of responding to his word. You see, we should let all these warnings and admonitions of Jesus give us a very high view of his kingdom. We should never forget what it took to bring us through that narrow door. See, the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day took it for granted that they would be in the kingdom. They thought they would be in the kingdom because of of their ethnicity, of their heritage, or because of their law-keeping, or because of their earthly prestige and influence. They took it for granted that they would be in the kingdom. What do we presume upon in our day? Do we think we have a place in the kingdom because of something in us? Because of our nationality? because of our intelligence or our theological accuracy? Do we think we have a place in the kingdom because of all the good works that we do, works of mercy and service? As though we were owed our spot at the table for something we are or something we have done. Let us never forget that there is nothing that secures our salvation but Christ himself. You see, Jesus is the narrow door john says jesus is the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me luke writes there is no salvation there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved it's christ and christ alone that's a narrow door right That's a narrow door. But it is a narrow door that anyone can walk through if they are willing. Let us not reject the master's invitation as the Pharisees and scribes did. When he opens the door to us, let us walk through. When he opens his arms wide for us, let us gladly enter his embrace. Through worship, through prayer, through the sacraments, through the fellowship of believers, all these gifts he has given us. And let us strive to share the Master's invitation with the world, as the Ashman's are doing in Ecuador, that many would enter through Christ the narrow door, so that we could see the mustard seed kingdom continue to grow into a great branching tree under which the nations are sheltered. Let us strive to see the leavened kingdom raise the one loaf, multiplying it, until all are fed and with more to spare. It's true, out of all Israel in the days of Jesus, only a few entered by the narrow door of Christ and were saved from God's judgment. But those few became the seed of the church, the first fruit of the Messiah's kingdom, which the Spirit carried to the four corners of the earth, bringing countless millions into the Master's house. It's what scripture has always promised for the Messiah's kingdom. That the nations would stream to him. That heaven and earth would be given to him. That under his reign, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your son to be the narrow door. To be the only way of access into your presence. By the blood of Jesus, you open the new and living way for us through the torn curtain of his flesh. And so by faith we enter in, we place our trust in Jesus, and we rely on him to save us. We give you praise for this glorious redemption in Jesus' name. Amen.